This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Dan Tierney from the governor's office is a listener of this podcast. He heard us raise the question the other day about whether anybody in the governor's office has been notified that the scope of the HB6 investigation is expanded to include them. And he delivered an emphatic no. That includes Dan McCarthy, the recently departed aide to Mike DeWine, who said he was leaving to take a break. We'll take him at his word. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues Laura Johnston, Lisa Garvin, and our chief political writer, Seth Richardson. It's a Wednesday on the podcast. Welcome all. Hi. Hello, everybody. Howdy. We got stuff to talk about. So let's do it. What did Ohio's top Republicans have to say in defense of their gerrymandering in the filings with the Ohio Supreme Court they filed Tuesday. Laura Johnston, I, I was kind of surprised that Bob Cup and Matt Huffman were almost condescending in their in their approach to the challenge to the gerrymandering. Almost condescending? I mean, <laughs> come on. I loved that they actually broke in two groups to respond to this. You'd think the five Republicans who all voted together on the districting would respond together. But no, Governor Mike DeWine, Secretary of State Frank LaRose, and State Auditor Keith Faber are represented in this case by Republican Attorney General Dave Yost. This makes sense. I mean, he he defends the state. Um, but remember, DeWine and LaRose said they weren't sure the maps were constitutional. They were expecting this to go to the court and let the court decide. Now, Matt Huffman and House Speaker Bob Cup they hired private attorneys to represent them. So they made two separate filings on Tuesday. And in the first lawsuit, which was from the ACLU of Ohio, the League of Women Voters and the A. Philip Randolph Institute, they gave them until Tuesday morning. So they came in and they said, like they tried to set up a timeline, but yeah, Cup and Huffman basically said, we don't need a timeline because you're just going to dismiss this right off the bat. Said, yeah, and and what, what was surprising was they said, basically, it's preposterous to think that we weighted these districts in favor of a supermajority for Republicans. I can't even say this with a straight face. I mean, th th what's preposterous is to say the opposite. I mean, I, I, either they must think they have like the fix in with the Supreme Court. Or they're just full of themselves to 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 say in a court filing. I mean, that's a sworn document, man. You're you're supposed to be held accountable for what you say under under your signature in a court document that these are not designed for a supermajority is preposterous. Right. And they say that the idea of political fairness written into the referendum and the Constitution that voters approved says that the political fairness is not actionable. Like that's not part of, of what needs to happen. And I feel like they're like defense attorneys that after the prosecution presents their case in, you know, in a, in a murder trial or something, it's basically like, there's no evidence here. Just throw it out. But you can't <laughs> lie in a court document. I mean, you can, you can make an argument, you could say things, but to, to just basically say, we're seeking to dismiss this because there's no basis to the to the I mean, they violated the Constitution in multiple ways. What they try to do is say, well, 
we don't look at what's in the Constitution as rules. We look at them as guidelines, which is preposterous, too. The the DeWine group that Yost is representing, and it is really interesting that Yost is only representing the three of them. Uh, they're just arguing that the timeline sought by the people who are suing is too tight, that they have right. jobs to do and they have to draw congressional lines. It's almost like they're saying this is not our priority at the moment. So we want a longer timeline when it, it should be their priority at the moment because it's so bad. They have to fix it. It'll be really interesting but to see what the Supreme think Court about does. It. If they're Republican, they still want these gerrymandered lines. The longer they push it back, the shorter time they have to fix it, right? And there's a February 2nd candidate filing deadline for next May's primary election. So that is a hard stop. And I, it does feel like they're just trying to kick the can down the road. Well, you got to think that based on the fact that the Supreme Court gave them a Tuesday deadline for responding, including to a lawsuit that was filed on Monday, that the Supreme Court does see the urgency here. Supreme Court does include Mike DeWine's son, who I am sure has to recuse himself from this case. I guess they'll appoint somebody to sit in his stead. Um, but, but, but it's just fascinating that Huffman and Cup, I, I guess they're just so drunk on power that they think they can pull this off. I, there's no way they're going to pull this off. This I, the, To have this dismissed outright is just a silly, but silly statement. I completely agree. But, you know, we've talked about why there isn't more outrage on the part of, you know, just basic citizens that their rights are being taken away from them. They, they, their vote doesn't count as much when we're in gerrymandered districts. This is super confusing. We are talking about three lawsuits. Now we're breaking down the parts of the redistricting commission into two factions. And then there's a third filing from the Ohio redistricting commission itself of the five Republicans. Like, And then we're going to talk about crazy timelines happening for the legislative state districts while the congressional redistricting is going on. I mean, this is incredibly difficult to follow but, for the average person. But it the really sanity is. comes from the Supreme court. The yes. Supreme court is the one that can say, okay, you know, put away all the noise. Here's what we're doing, which, you know, so far, it seems like that's the direction they're going. It, I, look, the fact that they set such an early deadline tells me they know that they have to deal with this in a big way. If this right. was just, a, 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 you know, a BS lawsuit, none of the urgency would be there. Anybody that looks at these maps knows they can't stand. Lisa Garvin? No, I was just agreeing with the with the overall sentiment there. So nothing more to say. I think one of the reasons you don't see people jumping up and down is, is that there's not a whole lot of media left in this state that pays close attention to this. I mean, we're very active on it, but a lot of the other media in the state is faded. And so I'm not sure how many people even know this is going on because their local media is not paying attention to it at all. Well, you know, I do see signs around like the fair district. It's time for fair districts, mm -hmm. these yard signs in people's yards, which I don't remember ever seeing before. So, I mean, that's a sign that, that people are taking it seriously. I just, I don't think this is going to get thrown out. I mean, that would be preposterous. And so I think, I think you're right. I think the Supreme Court realizes how important this is, and they're not going to let the Republicans play games. I can't wait to see how they deal with it. We'll, we'll be talking about it again, I'm sure. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. I got one, and so did a lot of other people. What is the notice from the state about unemployment benefits that is letting a whole lot more people know their names and or addresses were used for fraud? 
Lisa Garvin, this is another one of those cases where Chris Quinn's life becomes a news story on the front page of The Plain Dealer. <laughs> 2.7 million people got this, but it took me getting it for us to say, whoa, what's going on here? What is going on here? Well, what happened is, like you said, 2.7 million letters were sent out to people who receive pandemic unemployment assistance. And a lot of people said, what unemployment assistance? So uh, they were letting them know that their benefits were ending. And a, a recipients of these letters were like, I never filed for benefits. So this is their very first time that they found out that their name was used in a fraudulent manner to get uh, benefits. So I know that I got a letter back in June about a pin, you know, getting your pin to get into unemployment. I tried calling ODJFS. I tried getting on their website. I couldn't even get through. So, but I haven't gotten a second letter. So uh, yeah. And over since the pandemic began and since this money's been dispersed, Ohio has let out hundreds of millions of dollars in fraudulent claims paid, some of them to people in Nigeria. So this is, and they're spending more millions on people trying to trace the fraud and, and, and manage it. So yeah, it's quite a big, quite a big surprise for some people in mail finding that their name has been used fraudulently. Yeah. And in my case, it was to somebody who I don't know at my address, which is what's turning up and mind boggling. But they're just going to start a portal this week for people that get things like that. I was like you. I got the pin. I reported the fraud through their online form. But this is different. And look, the other thing and I heard from a whole lot of people, I sent out a text message in my text account yesterday and probably a third of the responses were I got the same thing, which tells me that this is hugely widespread. And the state says, well, don't worry, most of these were flagged for fraud and weren't paid out. But we don't know that. And one guy wrote to me and said he got a bank statement at his house under somebody else's name for his address, which makes him think that the unemployment money was deposited into account at his address. And what does that mean for his credit report? The question we're asking now is why won't the state tell us which of us are actually victims of fraud? Was, did anybody get money in Lisa's name? Did anybody get money in my name? Did the people who who's are, who are using our addresses under different names get money? What other crime is there that you're, you're not automatically told you're a victim of? And I, I mentioned this morning, Target, if they have a hack that exposes any information about you, they have to tell you. Why won't the state tell people, hey, somebody did get $10,000 of benefits under your name. We're working to get it back. You might want to protect your credit record. I'm not sure that they know. I mean, do, do they have a list of names of all the you know people who have been defrauded? Do we even know that? I'm not sure that they do. But but certainly by now, they know that they're, that a bunch of people have been defrauded. And so you should tell them. And I look, I've heard I don't think I've heard from people on any subject more than this over the past year, concerned about what it means for their own financial record, that, mm -hmm. that some part of their personal information was used. Why isn't the state working to ease their anxiety by saying yes or no? We flagged that. Nobody got money at your address you're good to go. It's, it's just a, it's a, this office is a disaster. It's been a disaster throughout the pandemic. It's caused more harm to people who couldn't get their money in time. It's just been a mess. And what is it? It's 18 months later. It's still not, 
it's still not fixed. So we're going to do another story that basically gets at what is the duty of the state to people to let them know whether they have been defrauded. Stay tuned. I'm sure we won't get that information in a single day. Uh, they'll, they'll stonewall, but we will get it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why are some legislators trying to get rid of any appointed members on the state school board? And why might that be a bad thing for people who are worried about the nonsensical fight over critical race theory? Seth Richardson, on the surface, you can make this sound like a good thing. We just want a school board that answers to the people that elects it. And the governor should not have the ability to put people on there and, and steer educational policy. But actually, the motive for doing this is kind of sinister. It's kind of this fascinating sort of collision of interest, right? Because, you know, like you said, yeah, the the on face value, you have Republican and Democratic sponsors, we should mention that basically say they want to, uh, you know, make it make it an all elected school board, make them answer to the voters, you know, for Democratic interest. That's basically because Republicans have controlled the governor's office for, you know, most of the last 25 years now. So. Of course, you know, you would want to say, hey, we have a, we want elected officers. That way you have a better chance of getting, you know, your uh, um, candidates on there and having more of a say. But, you know, I think the reality is and I think most people probably realize this, at least who you know saw this kind of pop up, is that it, it's really kind of all about diluting, um, you know, the school board members who have you know passed an anti-racism and equity resolution. Uh, basically condemning racism and saying that they, you know, school, uh, school employees should take um, equity uh, training and whatnot. Uh, so it's really, you know, a lot of it is really based on that attack on that, because the elected members of the school board do tend to be further to the right than the appointed school board members. And um, that that resolution passed with, you know, mostly appointed school board member support. What, what, but what I was struck by is that the elected members are are kind of the more nutty than than the ones appointed by the governor and that the governor's appointees bring it more to center. Um, I, 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 I wonder why that is. Is it just that, that that's who runs for the state school board? Yeah, I think that's that's pretty much the simple answer right there. Right. When you're when you're running in an elected office, what do you what do you talk about? What are the drivers of kind of school board elections? Right. It's it, a lot of the times it tends to be um, kind of the fiery issues. Right. The oh, we want to you know. What's an easier uh, campaign approach when you're trying to get someone to get out and vote? Is it saying, well, I would like to go and really focus on curriculum and whatnot? Or is it someone who is an ardent private school supporter who can really get, you know, private school families or whatever kind of out there to vote? It's the same thing this time around with critical race theory. I think we're going to see that a lot in upcoming school board elections. So when you have someone running for office, the easiest way to get votes is to throw out red meat to supporters because, well, you know, state board of education and, elections are not exactly right. the highest turnout. Affairs. So, so to give an idea of what we're talking about, talk a little bit about the school board, state school board member named Kirsten, who was involved in the January 6th protests. Yeah, I think that's, you know, uh, Laura Hancock, you know, my colleague who wrote the story on it, probably, you know, really pointed to her as kind of the, you know, the er example of uh, this sort of, you know, the, the elected school board members really being much further to the right than the appointed members who, you know. Right. So talk, talk, talk about yeah, she, she, you know, she's, you know, consistently, you know, repeated the false claim that Donald Trump won the 2020 presidential election and there was fraud. She was at the January 6th, you know, uh, 
rally at the Capitol where, you know, we all saw what happened to getting overrun. Um, you know, and not only that, but, you know, she, she was listed as an organizer for the event, took a bus from Lorain County to Washington to take people there. She said she wasn't in the Capitol, but, you know, just kind of being, you know, being there, kind of rallying, you know, right. saying that the so, election was stolen kind of gives you an idea of who is elected right. to the school so, board. I mean, that's the, that's one of the people that is determining the curricula for school, a complete nut job that's going to the Capitol to say the election was stolen when there's absolutely no evidence to it, a Trump adherent. So, so yeah, this is, this is scary because that what they're trying to do with this bill is concentrate the state school board with that kind of person. And that, that, that should shill what people think it'll it'll be interesting to see it's got bipartisan support we'll have to see if it passes you're listening to this week in the CLE what is the new proposed law in Ohio that would allow employers and schools to actually issue vaccine mandates and what would the exceptions be Laura Johnston this popped up late yesterday we kind of knew it was coming Bill Seitz had said there'd be something coming that tempers the debate that's going on what is this law about Right. This is much less draconian than the previous iteration. It would allow schools and employers to mandate vaccines, but also allows a ton of exemptions for people who have already had the virus, have medical conditions that would make the vaccination hazardous, or they have religious objections to vaccination. Uh, This is sponsored by Representatives Rick Carfagna, a Columbus area Republican, as well as Bill Seitz. And it's their version of a bill that made Ohio a laughingstock. Remember when people testified with all sorts of crazy stories about the vaccine, like it made people magnetized. That bill is a goner. That one had prohibited all employers, including healthcare facilities, from mandating coronavirus and uh, and, and other vaccines, which a lot of pediatricians took a real problem with. They're like, wait, wait, <laughs> we, we can't just say this. So this one says that employers, as well as K-12 schools and colleges and universities, are prohibited from mandating vaccines that have not yet received full approval. And obviously Pfizer has. The the be- personal belief exemption is yeah. kind of an umbrella exemption. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to attorneys about this and it's, it doesn't have to be that you belong to a religion that opposes it. It really can be a personal belief. I mean, it, it, there's almost anything can be used to, to do that, which is odd because it defeats the whole purpose of a mandate. If anybody can say, I have personal beliefs against this vaccine. Um, right. So you just have to write like a short answer of why you don't believe in it. And anything that goes like a pretty, pretty easy bar. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm not, I'm not that you get back then to the argument is a mandate the right way to go, or are you better off just pleading for people's goodwill to do it? Because if anybody can get out of it simply by tossing up some, some poppycock, then what's the point of a mandate? Anyway, this seems like it'll pass. Uh, it does sunset though, right? After two years. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, this, this doesn't seem nearly as I don't think you're going to see the same kind of outrage on this one. No, no, it's actually, it's allowing the mandate, which is kind of a big deal. You are listening to this week in the CLE. In a normal year, Matt Dolan would not be considered a late entry into the Senate race taking place more than a year later, but most other Republican candidates got a half year jump on him. How's he trying to make up the ground? Lisa Garvin, he's, 
he's making a big push. He is. He's doing a waltz across Ohio starting this weekend. He's going to hold a series of town halls so people can get to know him and his agenda. His very first one is this Saturday in Independence. And then the next one, although we don't have a date for it yet, is going to be in the, the Mahoning Valley. It's going to be an unscripted format. So, you know, I guess anything goes as far as discussion. Um, he is the one candidate that seems to be not as adherent to Trump as the rest of the the field. Um, He has an Ohio first message. Uh, It'll be interesting to hear what that is. He also wants to stop the Biden agenda, but I'd love to hear specifics on that. So hopefully that'll come to light in these town halls. He uh, he's walking around claiming that he has the endorsement of the plane dealer in Cleveland.com, which he doesn't. We haven't endorsed in that race. We did have an editorial that said we're really glad to see him because he's the only candidate in the Republican side that's not begging for the benediction of Donald Trump, which is a good thing. Somebody would stand apart and be his own person. Uh, But but we won't be doing endorsing in that race for quite some time. Well, and, and I hope that he maintains that stance because we saw J.D. Vance, another, you know, competitor in this race, do a complete flip-flop. I mean, you know, he was very against Trump, and once he threw his hat in the ring, he became a different man. So hopefully the same thing doesn't happen to Matt Dolan. No, I think Matt Dolan knows exactly how he's going to proceed. It, it does make him stand alone. Any Republican who is sick of seeing what Trump has done to the party now has a candidate they can gravitate to. And we've heard from a bunch of them. I mean, there's a whole bunch of Republicans in Northeast Ohio that detest Josh Mandel. Uh, They detest him. They don't want him to be the candidate almost as much as the Democrats do because they want to run against Josh Mandel. (laughs) Matt Dolan would present a bigger challenge. But, you know, he's got he's got a lot of ground to make up. Seth Richardson, you've been paying attention to this. Uh, He's got a bit of an uphill battle because he's such a late entry, right? Yeah, and I mean, I, I do kind of wonder if, you know, we talk about the the Trump vote kind of splitting and whatnot, and the, the really limited polling that we've seen hasn't quite shown that yet. There's still a bunch of time, so that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not going to happen. Um, but it, it, I, I, the, the path to victory for him is kind of narrow, but it is there. And I sort of wonder how that will play out, you know, especially just kind of going forward. I, I keep wondering to myself how much of, a factor Trump continues to be. I mean, is it something, you know, is his influence something that wanes, especially if he doesn't endorse in this race? But I mean, I guess he did kind of, you know, come out and basically say, don't vote for Matt Dolan. So that'll probably rile up with some of his supporters. But um, yeah, I'll be interested to see how they craft that, craft a Republican message that is not necessarily anti-Donald Trump, but is certainly not the, uh, um, you know, super pro, almost subservient message to Donald Trump that we've seen from some of the other candidates. From all of the other candidates. Yeah, really. and they've been gross and they're begging for his blessing. It's like, where, what happened to politicians that stand up and are independent and speak their minds? I mean, it's been, I, I mean, it's really been shocking just how pathetic they've been in seeking that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who's the guy President Joe Biden wants to take over the massive bribery scheme that has roiled the Ohio State House with First Energy fueling the bribes with its $60 million in dirty money? Seth Richardson, it, it's not that Joe Biden said, I want you to take over the investigation, but he's naming him to the position that takes over the investigation. Well, I do think that the name might play, you know, who he picked kind of plays a part as well, because we'd heard some rumblings about, you know, a possible more political pick kind of 
uh, you know, one of like a Biden supporter, kind of a high profile one. But instead, he picked uh, Kenneth Parker, who is a career federal prosecutor in the Southern District. He's, you know, worked there since 1999. Uh, you know, sir, you know, it was in the criminal division from 2011 to 2019, uh, organized crime drug t enforcement task force from 2010 to 2011. So he's really going to be tasked with kind of uh, coming in and steering the early being sort of the, probably the public face of the uh, HB6, um, you know, scandal investigation. So um, I, I do think that there's probably some thinking behind the scenes about uh, going with Parker over some of the other names that we kind of heard floated. Um, and, you know, I wonder if that is, you know, mostly because of the HB6, because you don't necessarily want to make a political appointment when you do have such a kind of politically um, explosive case that is, you know, on your plate, uh, going with a career prosecutor guy is probably a way of uh, ensuring that politics doesn't necessarily enter into the uh, equation. Well, and it feels like that investigation is about to make a light year leap, right? Because evidence has been introduced that some major players who have not been charged are in a heap of trouble because First Energy has basically admitted to paying bribes. So the people who took that money who have not been charged are in big trouble. And you've seen nothing, which makes you wonder, are some of these people now cooperating? And if anybody in, in the brain trust of this bribery scheme is cooperating, then, then the whole shooting match is over because people are going to get indicted. There's no longer a mystery about who drove this thing. They're going to know everything. So we keep waiting to see when we make that leap. Who, who are the other big dominoes to fall? Uh, and I expect we'll see it soon. Having somebody named into this position to carry that torch is pretty important. Yeah, and I can't imagine that he'll face any real obstacles as far as confirmation goes either. Both, you know, Portman and, you know, Sherrod Brown came out and said, uh, you know, they support him and congratulate him, which, again, I think is part of the, um, you know, the the thinking when going with this career prosecutor as opposed to some of the other political names that we'd heard. Because if you put a, you know, if you put a, like a Democratic supporter in that role, then all of a sudden it enter, you know, it really enters right. the Democratic politics into the um into the investigation and you know you you could maybe you could maybe play off of that you know both in elections and in the courtroom right so right. I, you, I think you don't yeah you don't want to taint this with the, the the stench of party maneuvers this was started by a republican appointee when when the investigation all broke out and the democrats have followed it as i think as professionally as the republicans did but you're right if you name the wrong person you open it up to that so we'll have to see what he does you are listening to this week in the cle how many people paid their respects to the late bishop anthony m pilla in downtown cleveland tuesday Lord johnston we had a fascinating juxtaposition of funerals in cleveland yesterday while anthony pilla's funeral was going on downtown the funeral for Frank Jackson's grandson was taking place elsewhere in the city with dirt bike riders in procession in respect to their late friend. Right. This was in the, the Cathedral of St. John downtown, and it was full with priests, family members and guests, including Governor Mike DeWine and his wife, Fran. Pillow was the ninth bishop for the Cleveland Diocese. He served from 1981 to 2006, and he was 88 when he died last week in his home. But it, this this is this outpouring of support from a community who deeply loved this bishop and he, 
saw him through a long time. And so I think, I mean, as far as I could tell, I, I didn't get to go, but the church was full. Cameron Fields was there and our photographer, Dave Pekowitz has some lovely pictures. Um, the bishop, current Bishop Molesic said the mass or, and, and celebrated him. He, he told this nice anecdote that they had met last at the assumption feast of the assumption in little Italy in August. And Molesic had told Pilla he wanted to go outside and walk around the feast. I mean, this is a massive thing in Little Italy where people flood the street. He didn't invite Pilla because he thought the walk might be too much for him. But as he navigated through the crowd, he saw Pilla coming up the hill. And he said he was in his element and loving every minute. He was this beloved bishop of Cleveland. Right. I mean, you got to serve for 25 years to get that kind of outpouring in Cleveland that we won't see the likes of that for a lifetime. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why has Ohio opened an investigation into the naming rights for First Energy Corporation to the Brown Stadium? Lisa Garvin, this is one of those things that it's much ado about something that's not that big a deal. But but it's much ado. You know, first it was the big call to get that name off because First Energy is a corrupt company and it's staining the integrity of the Browns. What's the Ohio investigation about? Well, they want to find out whether our money that we pay to our utilities to heat and light our homes was used in this deal. It's a 17-year, $102 million agreement, the naming rights. Um, Euclid Democratic Representative uh, Kent Smith called for this investigation. And in the meantime, he's asked the Browns to revert the name to the Brown Stadium until all this is settled. And I think that's the crux of it. I mean, you know, was our money used to pay for this? First Energy spokesman, uh, spokesperson Jennifer Young said that no ratepayer money was involved. She said it came from the utilities not the parent company, First Energy Corp. So they were saying like, you know, Con Ed or whatever it's called now, you know, they're the ones, you know, that's that's the money, that's right payer money, and that's not First Energy money, which is kind of a specious argument, if you ask me. But um, this is actually the fifth investigation that the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio has called into the House Bill 6 scandal since it broke. So obviously things are coming to a head. This may seem like a small thing, but for someone that came from Houston, I mean, I know Enron was completely disgraced and people were indicted and went to prison. But, you know, I... As I said in my roundtable on Saturday, the dog pound deserves a better name than First Energy Stadium. The the Enron with Enron, Enron did dissolve and go away. Right, whereas First right. Energy continues to be a presence. What I'm surprised at is that First Energy hasn't come forward and said, "Look, we get it. We're, we're, our company did bad things. We really bad things, and the people that were running it back then, we've run them out on a rail." We've we've done all sorts of reforms. We went into federal court, admitted our company's disgrace and paid a gigantic sum. We're trying to move forward. We believe in the Browns. And, you know, we hope that Northeast Ohio will come back to embrace us as a good a good company for this region. I mean, you just don't hear that. Um, and instead, it's just the constant, constant first energy fund funded this thing. At some point, you would think they would want to remake their image a little bit, which which would include being tied to the Browns. But we just haven't heard from them at all. I, I, I think they're, I, yeah, I think they're hoping this is going to go away, but I don't think it will. I think the, <laughs> I think the outrage is building. You know, it is. Yeah, I agree. I, I, the, the, unless they take the reins of this thing, 
it, it's just going to keep cascading. I'm surprised that we have not heard from the new leadership there to say, hold on, hold on, hold on. We get it and move on. Moving on. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Seth. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about the news some more.